hear me okay? I got this all worked out? Okay, great. Um, if you have been here with us for the past two weeks or had the chance to listen online, you know that we have been talking about abundance. The first week, we talked about hot dogs and bar soap and winning the lottery, and we made the children gather up Frosted Flakes to eat. And last week, we discussed rotting apples, the mantis shrimp's 12 photoreceptors, and how God doesn't want you to be his servant. That all makes perfect sense, right? For those of you who missed a week or two, here is an honest-to-goodness recap. Um, on week one, we considered the story of how God provided manna from heaven to meet the daily needs of the Hebrew people as they wandered through the desert. Um, we talked about how abundance is not having a stockpile or having a lifetime supply, but instead abundance is God supplying our daily bread. So it's our daily supply of whatever we need to make it through, whatever we're going to come to need again the very next day. Even knowing that God desires to be the source of all that we need, I suppose that I'm just like every other human person in my struggle with two big questions, two vital insecurities. Uh, so much of my life, I am striving for reassurance for the fears that I have that one, I won't have enough, and two, that I am not enough. We talked about the opposite of abundance being ne the, the opposite of abundance being never enoughness, also known as scarcity. And scarcity is always proclaiming, no, you won't have enough, and no, you are not enough. But we found some hope in the story from the Bible that for the sake of this topic, we are calling the story of the two brothers. I propose that how the father dealt with and spoke to the younger brother in the story reassures us of God's abundance in the response to our question, will I have enough? And now this week, we're going to check out the rest of the story. We're going to hear about what happens between the older brother and the father. And we're going to try to see what the truth of abundance has to say in contrast to scarcity's accusation that says you are not enough. So even though we're focusing on the second half of the story today, I'm going to go ahead and go back and read the whole passage. This is from Luke 15. Jesus continued, There was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had, set off for a distant country, and there squandered all of his wealth and wild living. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to the fields to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. When he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have food to spare, and here I am starving to death. I'll go back to my father, and I'll say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. So he got up and he went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and kissed him. The son said to the father, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. 
Meanwhile, the older son was in the field. When he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked him what was going on. Your brother has come, he replied, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. The older brother became angry and refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him. But he answered his father, look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. Yet you never gave me even a young goat so that I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours who has squandered your property with prostitutes comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him. My son, the father said, you are always with me and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. There's so, so much in this passage and in this story. And I've heard it read so many times and it still stirs up so much emotion in me when I read it again. Today, uh, in our deep dive of the story of the two brothers, we're going to talk about this older brother. And as you can see from what we just read, while the younger brother was out gallivanting in a distant country, partying and squandering his inheritance away, the older brother remained in his father's household. There's a lot of room for imagination in the story, a lot of things that we aren't told and we're left to kind of wonder. So I think things like, what kind of fights did these two brothers have when they were growing up? What was it like to be the father of two sons with such seemingly different personalities? I can't imagine that the younger son just woke up one day after having lived an exemplary, hard-working life and said, you know what, I want my inheritance so I can get out of here and go get on with some wild living. And I highly doubt that the older brother was just this goof-off who suddenly decided to shape up and prepare to take over the family business after his brother left town. Now, I imagine there's probably some pretty rich history between these two brothers, and because of that, some history between each of the brothers and their father. And you see that come out when you hear how the older brother responds to the news that his younger brother has returned and their father has thrown a welcome party for him. It's a servant to the older brother who the older brother initially gets the load on from. So if the older brother had worried about his younger brother or missed him or at any point during his absence um, thought, I wonder if he's ever going to come home, if he feels any kind of positive emotion knowing that his brother is not dead but alive, it totally gets lost in his anger. He's angry and he is not going to join in on the party. I'm sure part of him is angry for what the younger brother did. He could be legitimately upset that the younger brother dishonored their father by demanding his inheritance. He might be upset that, that he abandoned their family. But in the words that come from the older brother's mouth, we can hear the source of what his anger is really coming from. When this father steps out from the party to plead with his old, plead with his son to come in, to be with his family, to enjoy, to partake in the celebration. Here's what the brother says. He says, look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. You never even gave me a young goat so that I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours who has squandered your property with prostitutes come home, you kill the fattened calf for him. The older brother's anger is directed toward the father. He's angry that he has worked so hard and played by the rules while his younger brother has squandered and wandered. 
He's been a screw up and he gets the social event of the year and I've been responsible and I never even got a dinner party with my friends. In short, the older brother is saying, not fair. You are not fair. Father, your household is not fair. God, your world is not fair. And here's, we, here's where we come back around our question of the day. Am I enough? Am I good enough, deserving enough, worthy enough for love and belonging? At face value, the older brother doesn't seem like he's battling with a mindset of scarcity. He seems to think that he has done all the things, met all of the standards, believing that he's done all the things to be good enough. Um, but let me explain how I think he is a perfect example of scarcity. Because scarcity doesn't believe that there's enough good to go around. There's not enough esteem and recognition and love to go around. Scarcity says, for me to feel included, I need to exclude others. Scarcity says, your blessing prevents my abundance. Scarcity says, when you are celebrated, I feel small and inferior. Scarcity is a fragile ego. The better you are at holding it together for any extent of time, the longer you might be able to distract from that gnawing, am I enough question. But likewise, the better you perform, the more vulnerable you are to the threat and to the sting of failure. And when we don't feel like we're enough, when we don't feel secure in the abundance of divine love and approval, we turn to comparison to make ourselves feel better. Because you could always find someone who you're better than, right? And this is comparison. This comparison is what preserves the brother's sense of enoughness. Comparison helps to keep that threat, that pain at bay. And this is our fill-in of the bulletin, that scarcity compels us towards comparison. So the older brother compares, and we do the same thing, don't we? We hear that accusing voice in our minds that says, you're not enough. But we can shut it up by saying, well, at least I'm not as vain as she is. At least I'm not as lazy as he is. Or some more crafty ways that comparison sneaks in, we cloak it in concern sometimes and say things like, oh, did you hear he, get a, he got a new job? I just really hope he's not in over his head. I feel so badly for her with those rebellious kids of hers. Or this is a good little jab. You have so much confidence to pull off an outfit like that. When the father refuses to play the compa comparison game, the older brother isn't left with any capital. His value, his sense of enoughness, belonging, and acceptance within his father's household came from his expectation, expectation that he deserved the resources and honor that the father could bestow upon him. Both sons, in fact, thought that honor and resources were parceled out based on deservedness. Last week, we learned that the younger brother thought he didn't deserve to receive the father's abundance because of his wastefulness. He was going to try to deserve some meager portion of it by earning as a servant in the father's household. But the father would hear none of that, and he said, it's not about deserving when he throws the party for the younger son. All three of the characters in the story have a different perspective of deservedness. And this is our fill-in-the-blank for our bulletin again. They each had a story they believed that motivated their behavior and viewed, determined how they viewed the others. So the younger brother's story was this. I don't deserve. I don't deserve to be a son. 
And when the father bestows it on him anyway, it angers the older brother because he thinks, I do deserve. In fact, I deserve it more because I obeyed your commands and I put in the hard labor. Not only do I deserve it, but I deserve it more than my brother does. But the, the father has news for both of his boys. It is not about deserving. It is not how his household works. It is not about deserving. That is not how God's universe, God's kingdom works. So you can see why it's such an affront to the older brother. If it's not about deserving, well, then why did I work so hard to deserve? Good question. It's not fair. Yep, you're right. It's not fair because it's better than fair. It's lavish in its over-the-top abundance. So here's how the father tried to explain it to the older brother. And I'm going to tell you, I love this. I really love this. This is my verse right now. I, um, I'm going to get it on my wall in some form of artwork, and I, honest to goodness, have considered getting it tattooed on my body. I might still do that. This is what the father said. He says, I am always with you, and everything I have is yours. The younger brother, deserve it or not, got a party. But essentially, the father is telling the older brother, deserve it or not, you have always been at the party. I am always with you and everything I have is yours. You are already at the party. You have always been at the party. The father has never been holding out on you. All along, the whole time has been, I am always with you and everything I have is yours. So hear this, hear it not said from the father to the son in the story, but hear it from the divine spoken to you. I am always with you and everything I have is yours. It's pretty glorious. This ego-driven comparison game and how suffocating it can be seems really obvious when we look at the story of the older brother. But in our own lives, it might not look like standing outside of a party and refusing to go in. It probably looks a little bit more like a thousand little thoughts or a thousand little actions in a day. A thousand little ways of comparing ourselves to others, maybe feeling crappy about how we come up wanting and then figuring, a way, figuring out a way to either grasp and strive to feel better or to just numb it all. It's scrolling past someone's Facebook or Instagram post and not being able to click that little thumbs up or that little heart out of a tinge of jealousy. It's hearing a coworker get recognition from the boss and feeling small or resentful. It's looking at the pile of dirty dishes and unfolded laundry and feeling like a domestic failure and turning to your friend, little Debbie, to make it all go away for a few sweet, carpy moments. Hypothetically, maybe somebody in this room. <laughs> So we isolate ourselves because we feel not good enough. And we drive a wedge between ourselves and others because we see them as competition for the piece of the ego pie that we end up feeling like the older brother, alone and outside, missing out on the party. The party is abundance. Togetherness, the community, the celebration, our connectedness to others whom God has stamped God's divine image is what rebukes scarcity by saying, yes, yes, you are enough and you belong. You are worthy of my love, my provision, my gifts, and my honor. 
Individually, as God's beloved child, you are enough. Together, belonging to each other as brothers and sisters, you are enough. Free from comparison and free to enjoy the beauty and the richness of each other and every member of our divine family. Do you remember last week I told you about Jeff Chu um, and about the farminary at Princeton Seminary? So I promised that I was going to share some of his very best and most wonderful thoughts about the compost pile. And today I'm going to make good on that promise. Um, let me premise this talk of his with um, a couple of explanations. First, just to give a little context on this whole passage, um, that being the, the scripture passage, the story of the two brothers, the audience that Jesus told this story to was the got-it-all-together Pharisees, the religious leaders who were concerned with the letter of the law above everything else. They were the ones who would have related to the older brother, who obeyed all the commands and did all of the work. They thought that they should be rewarded by God for these actions. They deserved it. And the riffraff that Jesus was always hanging out with, well, they certainly didn't deserve God's abundance. We don't know how the older brother in this story responded to the father's plea to come in and join the party. And we don't know how the Pharisees responded to Jesus' story. But you might have your own story that you do know the ending to, or you know the continuation to. You have been one of the ones who has internalized the I'm not enough message after receiving it from the religious leaders of your own day. Unfortunately, I am not enough is a story some people here today were told indirectly or directly through their own experience within the church. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound. Maybe one of the most famous Christian hymns, right? But some people's experiences within the church is totally hung upon the next phrase that saved a wretch like me. I wish it weren't so, but there are absolutely religious leaders, churches, entire streams of Christianity that are so hung up on that wretch part of the story that their view of humans, people that are created in the image of God, is boiled down to essential total depravity. In general, Christianity talks a good game about grace, but for some of the biggest grace talkers, they start with and even seem to savor and get stuck on this idea that at our core we are all nasty, wretched, wicked, displeasing, and undeserving of God's love, undeserving of his presence, and undeserving of his abundance. If we had to pick one person in the church history whose name is most closely associated with this idea, it's a man who played a major role in the Protestant Reformation, John Calvin. We are not going to get off in the weeds about John Calvin and his modern-day devotees. But I wanted to explain that so you can make a little more sense of this beautiful picture that Jeff Chu is going to paint for us, a picture of a worm party. I'll reread the portion from last week and then continue on. This is what Jeff shares. When I got to Princeton, I unexpectedly landed at the farminary, 21 acres where we dig in the dirt and introverts don't have to talk much, but it still counts as class. Come down the long gravel drive and you'll see a pond to the left where geese like to rest. Early in the morning, when the sun begins to peek over the trees on the pond's far ends, a cloud of mist hovers over it, looking soft enough to be a blanket. To the right is our garden, 100 feet by 100 feet now. We'll expand it next season. Our peppers did well this season. So did our marigolds, dahlias, and okra. We had beautiful rainbow carrots. 
Our tomatoes did fine, but the soil isn't rich enough yet for some of the heirloom varieties. We need compost, and it's being made at our pile. To me, the most beautiful place on the farm, just past the garden fence. I didn't know much about compost. Now I know it preaches a hundred Sunday sermons about death becoming new life, about God's abundance, about how things that seem useless, moldy fruit, eggshells, coffee grounds, can become rich soil. The more I spend time at the compost pile, the more I wonder whether what we need is a more robust theology of compost. The more time I spend at the compost pile, the more I think it's essential that we help write a narrative of hope amid the world's narratives of despair. The more time I spend at the compost pile, the more I see that death never gets the last word. And the more I ask, isn't the story of compost really just the story of God turning fear into courage, sorrow into joy, death to life? I'm reformed, so I'm supposed to adore John Calvin. And what can man do, Calvin wrote, man who is but rottenness in a worm? A version of this story of wretchedness thrives today, and you can't help but think, looking at the news, that there is some rottenness in humankind. But this narrative has also been weaponized against many of us, especially those of us deemed more wretched than others. Women who claim their full womanhood, queer people, trans people, people who are lab labeled other. For much of my life, I believed this bad news. But the bad news is a lie. And a robust theology of the compost reminds me of this good news. A long-dead theologian who apparently knew little about farming mansplained it to us anyway. <laughs> but what he had to say about worms was wrong. Worms can be magic. They can be engines of redemption. They can devour things of death and poop out things of life. <laughs> and God gave them the power to do it. A robust theology of the compost reminds us that death and things of death, our sin, our suffering, the endless ways we hurt each other, the numerous ways we harm ourselves, are never the end of the story. A robust theology of the compost reminds us that God has written redemption into creation itself, if only we would see it. A robust theology of the compost reminds us that God has empowered us, lowly worms, to turn what's ugly, festering and dying into what's lovely, beautiful, and life-giving. A robust theology of the compost testifies that we can't do it alone, but we need others. A single worm can't do much, but in community, there's tremendous power. A robust theology of the compost testifies that we who have been told by society or religious leaders that we are worthless can act in the confidence of the knowledge that we are worthy. A robust theology of the compost testifies that God urges those who have been shamed not to shame, but instead to love, because in our acts of love, we participate in preparing the soil in which God's reign of love and justice can take root. We're already at the party, and it's in the compost pile. It's a worm party. Because God is a God of abundance, where even what seems like wastefulness, even what seems like death, is resurrected into life, goodness, love, justice, and peace. And not just goodness flowing out of me, because I am a single beloved daughter of a prodigal father, 
but in all of us together, in Jeff's words, pooping out life. And here's the fill-in for your bulletin. The good news is that we are enough. The good news is that we are enough. The better news is that we are more than enough together. Or you could just write warm poop party because let's be honest, if anything sticks a year from now, that's what you're going to remember from today. I shared with you last week that I chose this topic of abundance because it was what I most desperately needed. Less than a year ago, I left my ministry job of 20 years. I was like the younger brother and the older brother all wrapped up into one. Frank and I stepped out of a role and the salary that came with it into a great unknown and with some savings to carry us through the transition. And like the older brother, I figured that God took care of us all those years because we had given our lives in service to him. And like the younger brother, I feared that I had used up all of his riches and provision already. You don't even want to know how many times Frank has had to deal with my tearful breakdowns that always came down to the same thing. I'm so afraid that we are not going to have enough. My way forward, I assumed, was to get things rolling professionally with birth work, which had always been a side gig, and now it would be my main gig. And in birth work, making ends meet depends on having expectant families decide that my childbirth class is the one for them despite every other option in Philadelphia, or I am the person most uh, desired to support them through their birth above any other doula in the city. It also means that I have to figure out a way to succeed at balancing my family's practical needs with opportunities for professional growth. So besides my crippling, I won't have enough fear, and sometimes that manifests as breaking down when we're going through too many paper towels or freaking out when Frank gives a few bucks away to somebody in need. I thought it was going to somehow result in my children starving to death. That's what my body spoke. That was the anxiety. So besides that, I was also battling, battling this am I enough front. Scarcity was telling me that there was not enough to go around in my professional arena. And it demanded that I treat other people as my competition, or maybe at best, a means to my end for me and my family to be okay. It would probably be more helpful if I could tell you what exactly made the difference. I can't tell you exactly what made the difference. Um, I knew that I couldn't keep on with scarcity being this cruel master in my life. So in my desperation, I've sought and I have ultimately discovered another way. I don't have a magical formula or a five easy steps to say this is how you turn off the scarcity narrative and this is how you tune into the truth of God's abundance. But there has just been a lot of day in and day out being confronted with life continuing on and my nightmare scenarios not coming true. Scarcity didn't actually show anything for all that bark. No bite. I've just been feeling day by day, moment by moment, that God has been like a prodigal father, ready to scoop me up and show me what it's like to be celebrated, to be lavish in more than enoughness. Zoloft for my postpartum biochemistry has helped also. And preparing for this sermon has helped tremendously. And so now I can say that I truly feel freer than ever about worrying, will I have enough for myself and for the people that I love? And am I, free I am freer than ever from worrying about if I am enough.
I can esteem other people authentically, not because I need to make sure people think I'm nice so that I can succeed professionally. I can be free of the hamster wheel, the exhaustion of thinking that having enough and being enough are something that I need to achieve by effort. I can enjoy the present without thinking that what I know about the past or what I can't even know about the future are leaving the balance sheets in the red in a way that God can't make up for. I feel a deep sense of inner worth and security. I just feel like there's enough for everybody. I don't have to have power over someone or manipulate them or earn recognition or be in charge of decisions. This is unlocking creativity and joyful living in me. There's so much life and goodness when I get to reapply that energy towards being at the party rather than micromanaging all the variables to work up my enoughness. I get to watch life unfold as God generously provides for me. And it's that same generous, abundant life that God is inviting you to. You are already at the party. Might as well join in. If this feels like an abstract concept, but you want to do some concrete things to start operating out of God's abundance, here are a few ideas that I have. First, take every opportunity you can to be generous with your praise of others, especially if it's someone who doesn't have anything to offer you in return. Let the other worms in your life know how great you think they are. Find a way to tell someone each day, you are enough. Notice and point out where God has stamped God's divine image on the people that you encounter. Next, point out beauty and abundance when you see it. And say it out loud. Treat it like a treasure hunt. It's all around us, but we are often too focused on scarcity to realize it. So set an alarm or choose another prompt so that at least once a day you can stop and ask yourself, where do I see beauty? What can I see with my eyes right now that testifies to me the truth of God's abundance? Once you get in the habit of realizing how much beauty and abundance is around us, it can begin to feel like you're just walking through a whole different world. I've had these moments where it's just in sync. And I, I swear to you, I can't, almost can't stand the beauty I see in other people, like where every single person looks so beautiful to you. The world can look totally different when you get into this practice. And finally, try out this mantra for size. I am creating content for my eulogy, not my resume. Scarcity tells us that we better build up our resume, that we have to impress people with how deserving we are of their esteem based on what we have accomplished and who we are. But God's abundance leaves us free to live a life where trusting him for our enoughness means that we can simply delight in already being at the party in hanging out with the rest of our divine family so that they have pleasant things to say about how we loved them well after we're gone from this earth. Let's pray together. Lavish prodigal God, stun us with your abundance. Chase us down with it. Turn our faces to see it. Give us delight and show us how we are already at the party. Spare us from this lie that keeps us standing outside, feeling that we're not enough, 
feeling that we won't have enough, but God, make every day, every moment a delight of walking through a world and walking in a life where we have an abundant Father caring for us. We love you so much. Amen.